If you back up to the first 14 verses of Luke chapter 14, where our gospel reading comes from today, you get the context of what's going on when Jesus tells this parable of the great banquet. He's actually already told another parable about the wedding feast, another great banquet, about the wedding feast where those came in and, and took the higher seats instead of taking the lower seats first like they should have. He's already preached on humility. And if you back up to the very beginning of that chapter, you find out that it is the Pharisees that he is eating with. He goes, he says all of these parables about banquets when he himself is at a banquet. He himself is at a dinner, a dinner at the ruler of the house of the Pharisees. The ruler of the house of the Pharisees. And it is when Jesus is preaching about humility and preaching about feeding the poor and preaching about helping the crippled. It is when Jesus is telling all these things to the Pharisees that one of them shouts out, and this is at the first verse that we read today, one of them just shouts out, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And I think we can imply here what that Pharisee meant from the context of what Jesus teaches in the following parable of the great banquet. I think that this Pharisee was just saying that, agreeing to get along, just going along to get along. He thinks about what these things that Jesus is saying is, yeah, that's that's great, Jesus. Blessed is everyone who eats in the kingdom of heaven. If you want to invite in the poor and you want to invite in the crippled and you want to heal the sick and you want to do your mercy and your graciousness thing that you like to do, Jesus, that's all fine. But we're still here. And we're still doing things our way. And I don't want all of that stuff to mess up my stuff. I don't want to change the way that I have to live to live that way. So how about we just be inclusive here and say, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. We can eat bread together, the Pharisees. And if you want to invite some other people in, that's fine to Jesus. That's the attitude of the Pharisees. Of course, the message Jesus is telling is kind of the opposite. His preaching throughout this chapter is directed against these Pharisees. The Pharisees are trying to whine and dine Jesus. They're trying to find out what he's about. But it doesn't even cross their mind that he could be talking about them. That it is precisely the things he's teaching about humility and graciousness that he is preaching to them, that these are the sins, their pride, their arrogance. These are the sins that they need to repent of. Now, one thing that you should be reminded of is this, and it's not an easy thing to hear, and it's not really even an easy thing for me to preach to you or to myself, that I think the Pharisees of today are actually, generally speaking, most connected to or analogous to Christian conservatives, or at least people who would identify that way. If you think about the ancient world and who these different groups were that Jesus deals with, the Pharisees were the Bible-believing group. The Pharisees were the people of the book. They were the ones who were the traditionalists. They were the conservatives. 
They weren't like those liberal Sadducees who didn't even believe in the resurrection. They weren't like the ones who denied the Bible. These were the guys who held to the book. They weren't the crazy liberals out there throwing temper tantrums because Roe v. Wade was overturned. And as an aside, praise God. Praise God it was. We can talk about that later. But the Pharisees weren't the crazy ones. They weren't the weird liberals or the insane people who deny the, the, the truth of Scripture. They were traditionalists. They didn't like it when a new teacher came in and started teaching what they considered new things. And some of those traits can be good. I think it is good to be conservative and traditional and Bible-believing. But the problem was that they had convinced themselves that because they belonged to this group, because they had this identification about themselves, then they had figured out a way to live without Christ. They had figured out in their own heads that by nature of being this conservative religious crowd and that they had their rules that they followed, and if they stayed within those boundaries, then they were saved according to their own rules. And although it looks different today, I think conservative Christians should be on guard for this. We should be on guard that we do not come up with unspoken sets of rules and unspoken shibboleths that if we just do the right things and say the right things in the right way and belong to the right social groups of people, then we can convince ourselves that we don't really need Jesus. Even if you don't want to admit it, it is easy to let the importance of what the faith is all about. To let the importance of a true and deep repentance of our sins, based on the blood of Christ, forgiveness from that blood, slip away from our mind. Slip away because we have some connection to Southern Bible-believing Christianity. Slip away because we were confirmed, however many years ago that was, for us. Slip away because our names are probably on the rolls of some Lutheran church, or at least some church, somewhere. Slip away because we post Bible verses on Facebook now and then, and they get some likes. And so we have to be faithful, right? Whenever someone tells you that they're going through struggles in life, you tell them that you'll pray for them, whether or not you actually remember to do that later on. But you set the heart emoji in the text, so it must be true. And all of this is good and nice. All this is good and nice because you and Jesus worked this all out, didn't you? One Sunday morning when you were at the beach on the lake, or you were at the beach on the, at the ocean, or at the swimming pool, and you were sunbathing, and the light was shining, and it was a beautiful morning... And you and Jesus worked it all out. He told you, you felt him in your heart, and he told you it would all be okay. Even though you still felt a little bad for not being at church that morning, like your pastor had told you was more important than sunbathing at one time. You had probably heard that before. You just didn't remember it. But it's all okay. It's all good. You and Jesus worked it out. You vote reliably Republican, just like the Pharisees probably did back in their day, and 
When you come to church, you remember to throw a 20 in the plate now and then. So it must all be good. It must all be nice because everything fits within the conservative Christian rule set. There's a rule set that we have. A shibboleth. Say things the right way. Speak things the right way. Act the right way. Be part of the right group. And it all fits together. It all makes us feel comfortable. The problem, dear saints, is that the Bible, when we're honest about it, does not preach a watered-down, pharisaical gospel. It does not preach that you just have to have a certain rule set that you're comfortable with that you can work out with God on your own. When Jesus comes, and I'm talking about the real Jesus, not the Jesus who you felt tingle in your heart when you were on the beach sunbathing. The real Jesus comes and he preaches a fire and brimstone law. He preaches a law that says you are a sinner. You have fallen short of my glory and if you do not repent, you will go to hell and you will suffer the weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. But then it also preaches this, a 200 proof, blood-filled gospel. Not a weak gospel, not a watered-down gospel, but a gospel that can actually deal with the wrath of God. A gospel that can actually deal with the sin that has put you in that place. A gospel that is filled with the blood of Jesus Christ, which covers all of your sins. Even the ones you're afraid to tell your Christian conservative neighbors about. All of your sins. A gospel where your sins are buried at the foot of the cross of Calvary and where Jesus is raised again, defeating death itself, defeating devil, so that you can have a new life when he's raised again. That you can have life in him. And life for what? Life to be a slave, Paul says. A slave. Not a slave to sin anymore like you were. And not just existing in a kind of watered-down, pharisaical way that's comfortable, but a slave to Jesus Christ, enslaved to his life, enslaved to his ways, enslaved to his statutes, enslaved to his ways of being. A 200-proof, blood-filled gospel. A life enlivened by the fire of the Holy Spirit. Enlivened by the fire of the Holy Spirit in your heart and enlivened by the fire of the Holy Spirit on the words that come out of your mouth. Not just shibboleths, not just niceties, not just Facebook posts and heart emojis, but real Holy Spirit filled words of gospel. And notice the excuses that the Pharisees make in the parable for not joining in on this. Whenever the Pharisees act like Pharisees. And Jesus preaches against them. He tells this parable of the master who threw a banquet. The master who threw a wedding feast. So make no mistake about what this banquet is, what this wedding feast is. This is the wedding feast of the Lamb. This is the banquet of the kingdom of God. This is the banquet where the Father invites you to the wedding of Christ and his church. 
This is you being invited to participate in this kingdom of God that he has prepared. And let's make this very practical for you right now. Where is this banquet now on earth? It's here. It's here today. In these doors, in these chairs, in this city, at this time, at this place. Church. Sunday morning, church. If we want to keep anything about Southern Bible-believing Christianity, let's at least keep Sunday morning church. Where do you come to this banquet? You come here. You come to receive Christ's gifts here. Week in, week out. And notice the excuses the Pharisees make for not participating in this kind of banquet. The first one says... I have bought a piece of land, and I have to go take care of it. In other words, I I have some worldly goods, some stuff that needs to be taken care of. I have a new car that needs driving. I have a boat that needs fishing from. I have a house that needs projects done over the weekend, and this is my only time I have to do it. I have shopping to do, and there's some good July 4th sales this weekend. Another says, I have five yoke of oxen that need tending to. In other words, there's cares in this life. There's so many things going on. My granddaughter has a soccer match this weekend, and my grandson has a baseball game on Wednesday night. My weekends are the only time I have to work on the hobbies that I have, and I have all these doctor's appointments I have to go through throughout the week, and it's just a lot to do. Maybe I can try and fit in Jesus that one hour, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see. And then the last guy has the best excuse. I just got married. I just got married. And it sounds good for a second until you realize he's just giving in to the worldly and fleshly passions of his sinful nature. I just want to be with my wife. Now, wives are good. Marriage is good. Family is good. Oxen are good. Land is good. Boats are good. Doctor's appointments are fine, too. But even good things can be idolized. I haven't heard many people use the excuse of marriage for not coming to church. That would be good. Someone should try that sometime. I'm married. I can't come. But I have heard other fleshly excuses. That's my only time to sleep in. Sleep is important, you know. The doctors say it's one of the most important things you can do for your body. These excuses, they are honestly silly sounding. That's why we're laughing about them. One thing that a wise pastor once told me, likes to use this, and I think this is good, is whenever you're considering something about your relationship with Christ, or whenever you're considering taking an action that you are concerned about its morality, you should just say it out loud. Say it out loud and see what it sounds like. I'm not going to go to church because I want to sleep in. I'm not going to go praise the creator and sustainer of the entire universe and receive his very body and blood shed for me for my eternal salvation because I need to get a little bit of shut-eye, five or ten more minutes than I would otherwise. Just say it out loud and see how it sounds. 
I always thought the doctor appointment thing was pretty good too, that people will never miss a physical doctor's appointment. Those are the most important things. We need to take care of our bodies, right? But yet every week here is a spiritual doctor's appointment. And when you think about the fact that our souls are immortal and last forever and our bodies are going to die no matter how many physical doctor's appointments we have, starts to make you think. Why would you miss two to three doctor's appointments a month of one kind but not another? But the reason that we can make these excuses to ourselves, and I'm not just talking about church attendance, by the way. There's other ways that you could apply pharisaical thinking in your life, and maybe you have, because maybe church attendance isn't something you struggle with. I could be preaching to the choir here, and I probably am preaching to the choir here a lot to some degree because, well, you're here. There's other types of pharisaism. But the reason that we can make such silly excuses about either church attendance or about tithing or about whatever kind of thing we are ignoring about our Lord's commands, it's because we have a rule set. Because we have a way to fit it in to our rule set that it's okay. It's okay if I miss church or it's okay if I don't give However much I probably know I should give in my heart because I do the minimum. I do the thing that's required. I get the thing done and out of the way. I go on Easter morning. I go on Christmas Eve. And that's good enough. That's in the rule set. And then we start to sound like that Pharisee from the beginning of the reading. Sure, Jesus, you can have the humble Gentiles who recognize the great gift that they've been given and come to the feast, but I'll just come to the feast when I feel like it. Blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. And so, dear saints, if you recognize this Pharisaism in yourself, if you recognize this Pharisaism in conservative Christianity, whether it's about church attendance or something else, then repent. Maybe it's not just about church attendance and voting Republican. Maybe you have different vices and different shibboleths to justify that. But I have no doubt that your sinful nature, just like mine, has tried to find ways, many ways in the past, and probably ways even now, around Jesus' fire and brimstone law and his 200-proof gospel. So when you see that, repent. Repent and believe the gospel. Because when you repent, your Pharisaism is forgiven. Remember the whole point. Christ has invited you to his banquet. And you are here. And what are the gifts of the banquet? What happens at the banquet? Christ is married to his bride, the church. He has taken you to be his own. Despite your wandering, despite your lost ways, despite your slipping away of all the things that you've slipped away and tried to go around his 200-proof gospel, he has invited you anyway. And you are here today. You are in these brown chairs. You are in these doors, in this place, in this city, in Mississippi. And how glorious is that? How glorious is today that today you get to receive his gospel? Today you receive his gifts. 
Today you do receive the very presence of the eternal one true God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. Today you receive his body and blood poured out for you from this altar. Today you receive his salvation. You drink from the wells of his salvation. Your cup overflows with his mercy. The bread of heaven falls down. It's a banquet unlike any other. A banquet filled with rich food. A banquet where wisdom has prepared her place. The wine is mixed. The table is sent. So come in. Come in and receive his gifts. You are here. That's what matters today. And just as a reminder, like Jesus says, there are still empty chairs, too. So when you've come in, when you've been brought in from the highways or the hedges, when you've been brought in as the crippled or lame, or whether you've been here for a really long time, like the Pharisees were, there are those who have made their excuses and have not come back, and that's sad. But Jesus wants his house filled. He says, compel them to come in that my house may be filled. And so rejoice when you look around you and you look to your side, to your left and your right and behind you and in front of you, and you see people. Rejoice that you see people who weren't here a year ago but are here now. Rejoice when you see old friends who are here visiting us today. Rejoice when you see the people here, but then also see the empty chairs. See the empty chairs and go out from here when you leave here today, and invite. Invite the others to come in. Invite the downcast and trodden. Invite the people who are lost in this chaotic and shameful world that we live in. Invite them to come in so that they can hear the true hundred-proof gospel, so that they can hear the blood-filled gospel, so that they can hear the gospel that can be the only answer, the only answer to the chaos and the shame and the hardship and the sin in their life. Because they know the fire and brimstone law, if they're honest with themselves. They know what they're missing. They know something is not right. So tell them what's not right. Tell them their fire and brimstone sin. Tell them God's wrath is real. And then tell them the answer, the real answer, the only helpful answer, the only thing needful, the only thing that can ever help Jesus' blood. And bring them in. Fill the empty chairs. Show them what glorious and great and amazing gifts flow into these simple brown chairs. Week in, week out. And fill the chairs. For what the Pharisee said was actually true. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of heaven. To Christ be all the honor and glory now and forever. Amen.